The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, June 23rd, 2017 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Been reading some news. Did you know the Russians hacked the election? A lot of people, a lot of people are talking about this. Not, not a lot of people who voted Republican. But the Washington Post had a blowout piece. Do we call them pieces? It came in many pieces about how the Obama administration reacted to this. And here was uh, here is a quote that stood out to me. They were quoting a senior Obama administration official involved in White House deliberations on Russia. You know, why didn't Obama, why didn't the White House warn America more? And he said, or she said, it is the hardest thing about my entire time in government to defend. I feel like we sort of choked. Oh, choked. That's some sports radio fighting words. But I'll tell you why the Obama administration didn't come out harder. It was this. He thought Hillary would win. We all thought Hillary would win. And in the context of really believing that Hillary would win, what you do is you say enough at the time, but you don't look like you're putting your finger on the scale. And then a serious, competent administration with actually some fish to fry in this fight takes office and does serious, competent administration things to root out future evils. It all works out. If Trump's going to win, well, then you totally change your tactics. It's the same thing with Comey. Nobody's talking about this, as the Bard says. The reason that Comey went public with his investigation of Hillary the second time right before the election was that he thought Hillary Clinton was going to win. Because if Hillary Clinton does win and she winds up being indicted, Comey says, hey, I told you, you did what you guys wanted. You knew about this. And if Hillary Clinton does win and she winds up not being indicted, Comey says, hey, look, I gave you all the information I could. Really, no harm, no foul. He would have made a totally different choice, I believe, if Trump had won. Maybe he doesn't even know that, but it really is a different calculation. Now, I was reading this article in the Post, and I know what I'm going to spiel about, which is the Otto Warmbier death Uh, at the hands of the North Koreans. Make no mistake, he died in America. They killed him. It's kind of dark, kind of down. So I wanted to do an uplifting story. And just like yesterday when I talked about camel beauty pageants, who doesn't like a fun animal story? And I came across one in National Geographic. And what it was is the the author, Erica Engelhaupt, did a really good and thorough investigation about the likelihood of your pet eating you when you die. Here's the pull quote from that. Cats get a bad rap for being the most eager to eat their owners. She found that dogs are more likely to eat their owners. In fact, there was even a German shepherd who started eating his owner 45 minutes after the owner committed suicide. I suspect the German shepherd maybe egged him on a little bit, you know, with his paw, just pushing the shotgun a little closer, saying things like, nobody loves you. Rutsworth Riving. I don't know why they always have to have the Scooby-Doo accent speech impediment. And, and then the article goes on to quote some rando, actually as forensic anthropologist, Carolyn Rando of the University of College of London, who notes that, uh, among other things, beagles were the smallest breed to engage in scavenging, you know, eating their owners. This article ends with this section, what to do, because, you know, there always has to be a call for action, empower the reader. Here's how it goes. There's no way to guarantee that your pet won't eat you if you die apart from not having any pets. Wrong. There is a way. Get a goldfish. 
On the show today, as I said, I will spiel about the reactions to the death of Otto Warmbier. We do have a Slate Plus segment at the end of the show, games you could play with your kids in the car. But first, the year was 1917, and the young radicals were changing the world as the world was changing them. Jeremy McCarter is the author of Young Radicals in the War for American Ideals. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks. It's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Young Radicals in the War for American Ideals. Oh, sounds applicable to today, but we're talking 100 years ago. Almost exactly, 1917. Here are the Young Radicals in Jeremy McCarter's book. Randolph Bourne, who was a hunchback, who wrote about issues of social justice and also the handicap. Max Eastman, who was a poet who was tried for violating the Espionage Act. Walter Lippmann, who I hope you know, was one of the great writers in the early part of last century. There was Alice Paul. If Elizabeth Warren persisted, she went, oh, about 100 times further. And John Reed. You ever see Reds? Warren Beatty? That was that guy. This is a book about an era told through five people and their contemporaries. Jeremy McCarter is here. He is the author of Hamilton, The Revolution. And talk about the world turned upside down. Take me to 1917. What was going on then? January 22nd, 1917, Woodrow Wilson gives a speech that is universally acclaimed. Wilson says that in the middle of World War I, the United States, which is still not has not joined the war, is going to start to fashion a peace. It's going to be a peace without victory. The United States is going to use its moral and political ideals to uh, help the world through this terrible crisis that it has uh, been in for the last three years. A week later, the Germans announced they're going back to unrestricted submarine warfare. Five weeks later, the United States is at war. Yeah. And Zimmerman Telegram intervenes too. And the Zimmerman Telegram. Yeah, which is the, the idea that Mexico is going to declare war on the United States. So there were complicating factors. Which is absurd as a concept, but it was enough. But just to have it out there seems threatening. Right. Yeah. So on uh, April 2nd, Wilson decides we're going into war. And the kind of promise, the kind of ideals that were embodied in Peace Without Victory are gone. And the country tears itself apart. Do you think it was wrong to go to war? Well, here's the way I think about it. it. These counterfactuals are always a lot of fun. You know, what if it had, what if we had done something different? The way I think about it is look at the range of possibilities. If we hadn't gone to war, 
things could be better. If we hadn't gone to war, things could be worse. If you consider that World War II was pretty much the inevitable uh, second act once World War I ended in such failure, how much worse could it have been? Mm-hmm. If we think about Hitler and Stalin and the Holocaust and every other horrible thing that happened because of the way the World War I ended, I don't know. I might be willing to roll those dice and say the United States staying out of it may be for the best. Your five radicals were against the war, though. None, none were really an Orwell figure who joined up out of idealism. Well, Walter Lippmann was in favor of the war, and he even went to work but for the War he, Department. Uh, soon, and the New Republic soon admitted we were wrong. At the <laughs> end of the war, yeah. I mean, there's a, so Walter Lippmann had been a boy socialist. We think of him as this, as this huge establishment figure as a newspaper columnist. But right after he graduated yes, on from on the Harvard, Mount Rushmore of journalists, I would say. For sure. Yes, yeah. very important. And he started as a socialist, and you see him making this trajectory from being a you know young radical socialist to uh, becoming a progressive, going to work for the War Department, thinking that the war can somehow help fulfill these things that he's been agitating for. And then you see at the end of the war how disillusioned he is because he staked everything on it and it blew up in his face. I maintain a lot of respect for Lippmann even throughout this, more than I do, I think, for his old college roommate, John Reed. Um, so if you haven't seen Reds, he is the only American who's buried in the Kremlin and he was very idealistic and maybe it came later to him. But what's, why was he important to put in the book? Reed is another one of these figures that you see traveling a long arc in a short time. When he graduated from Harvard in, in the same year as Lippmann in 1910, he had no politics. He just wanted to play pranks and write poetry and have a good time after college, he gets radicalized and he decides that uh, he needs to be standing up for people who don't have the resources that they need to have. And when he goes to Russia in 1917 and watches the revolution, he feels like he has seen the new world born. And so he goes back to Russia after that. He ends up working for Lenin. uh, And then there's still this open question about, uh, you know, after he had committed so wholeheartedly to what the Bolsheviks were trying to build, did he die disillusioned with Bolshevism or was he willing to stick it out? We'll never really know. Well, there's another question. Was he right? I mean, at the time, I can understand why he would have chosen Bolshevism over capitalism or the current version or the then current version of capitalism. I think history regards him incorrectly. Regards how so? To, to have chosen Bolsheviks over capitalists, even because look at what capitalists became and look at what communism became. Well, that's the question is Reed dies in 1920. And by that time, has he seen enough to realize that his hopes have miscarried? Or, I mean, in my opinion, if it hadn't happened then, it would have happened sooner or later. But the question is, right, like at that point, is it a reasonable thing to keep hoping that this experiment in Moscow is going to work out? Or should it have been obvious that these hopes are miscarrying? But there's a reason that Lipman... Let's just concentrate on them. There's a reason that Lippmann doesn't subscribe to those theories. It's not that I'm, I, by the way, I'm a bit of an institutionalist, but I think he believes more in some version of America being able to get it right. Maybe you could even say he's less radical than Reed. And he was, he was right. I mean, he was right and Reed was wrong. And not just because of the vagaries of history, I think. Right. I mean, what's fascinating about Reed and Lippmann and why I wanted to get these guys in the book is that they were friends. And at the beginning of the story, Lippmann is the one who's the dedicated socialist. Reed is the one who is skeptical of socialism as he's skeptical of all politics. And somehow their lives, the shape is an X because they cross over and end up in completely different places from where they started out. The arc's awesome. 
it's just fascinating to watch it happen and know that, you know, these are two, you know, young guys in their 20s trying to hash this out. They are friends for a while. And then when the country is blowing up, so does their friendship. Which characters in Hamilton is that like? <laughs> it's right. I hadn't thought about putting these, putting them side by side. But yeah, sure. There's a little Hamilton and Burr in there. I yeah. guess. Yeah. I mean, one didn't shoot like Lippman didn't shoot Reed. I mean, that's the only difference. Okay, Alice Paul. I didn't know much about her. I knew the name, like if you list Elizabeth Cady Stanton and those suffragettes, and then there was the next generation. She was badass. She was the (laughs) maximum badass. Yeah, Yeah. it's unbelievable what she how uh, what she was willing to suffer. How she put the suffering suffragettes, (laughs) right? But she led the militant wing of the suffrage movement in its last seven years, and she was a brilliant strategist. She was totally fearless. She suffered physical harm for the sake of this ideal. She was very complicated. You know, now in particular, it's crazy that we don't all know the story of what she sacrificed. Do you say she's complicated because of the choices she had to make on race? That's one reason. Yeah. I mean, the elders in the movement had decided it's foolish to try to get a constitutional amendment because the federal legislators won't stand for it. And because then you need to get state ratifications from the South. And the South was opposed to suffrage because anything that could have increased the chances of enfranchising black people is not going to happen. So Alice Paul has to decide, well, what am I going to do about this? And what she does is try to have it both ways. She says that it's yes, like um, black women can march in this enormous suffrage parade in 1913, but they have to march separately at the back. And she does this even though uh, black women are essential to the work that she's doing. And and even at the end, you know, when it's she's possible, personally very anti-racist, she you know, there's some question about this. Like she's complicated in a way that Woodrow Wilson is not at all complicated. Mm-hmm. Like Woodrow Wilson, like to his core, was a white supremacist. Like that's, you know, no question. But with Alice Paul, it's she continually had to make this choice about priorities. How is she going to try to do what she thinks is the right thing to do for women? And in a couple of important cases, it meant shortchanging the interests of black women. But when you lay out um, the calculation she made about how to get uh, suffrage um, instituted in states, very astute politically. So she wasn't just an idealist and wasn't just a rabble rouser. She met with Wilson and laid it out to him in a way that his political mind could understand. Yeah, she had received an apprenticeship with uh, the Pankhursts in England. And so she understood that it's a waste of time to talk to elected officials about what's good or what's right. She just immediately, when she first sat down with President Wilson in 1913, just talked about politics and said that women already have this voting strength. They're going to have more because we're winning state by state. It's in everybody's interest, including yours, Mr. President, if we are enfranchised and you can be the president who brings this to us. And Wilson was not a suffragist. He did not think that women deserve the vote and had to be dragged every step of the way until he finally was willing to come out for the amendment. Eastman's words live on. Did he change many minds in his lifetime? Eastman had this split down the middle of his soul. On one hand, he wanted to be a poet. He grew up in the country. He was an artist. On the other hand, he was a dedicated socialist. And the way he was able to serve both of those things is by editing a magazine. And the magazine also had it split down its soul. The Masses, this beautiful, funny, um, cantankerous magazine that was published in Greenwich Village, had this tension between the poets and the reporters who were people like John Reed, who tended to be political, and the artists who tended not to be. And so it was Eastman's job to try to keep all these people working together to to the best extent that he could to fight for basically all of the radical causes of his era. And one of the things that I think is underappreciated, we think about idealists as being these individuals. Yes. And some idealists also have to figure out how to lead. 
They yeah. have to figure out how to how to harness the idealism of a lot of other people and get them marching in the same direction. And Max Eastman was brilliant at that. And was born the least known in his lifetime? He was better known in his lifetime um, than he is now, for sure. Mm -hmm. Randolph Bourne was uh, a social critic who got a tough start because he had his face was deformed when he was born. And then he developed an, an illness when he was a child that left him um, with a hunched back. So he only knew the experience of being an outsider. And it turns out he was able to use that to gain new insights into the way American society works or doesn't. And so you see him becoming the champion of youth in this generation and starting in 1913, where youth feels like it's the young people are going to be the engine for progress. And when the United States goes into the war, he is willing to blow up every bridge to say this war is wrong. This war is not going to achieve any ideals and uh, ultimately loses his life. Do you think most change comes from radicals? One of the things I saw in the book is that these are hard questions to know because it feels like in moments of change, everything is moving in that direction. So let's take suffrage, for instance. There's this ongoing historical debate about what allowed the United States to enfranchise women when it did with the 19th Amendment. Is it because of Alice Paul and her unbelievably brave militant actions that involved riots, arrests, hunger strikes being force-fed, or was it the slow, steady work of Carrie Chapman Catt and the much larger suffrage organization that she led that state by state changed the composition of the House? And then because the House composition changed, then it was in Woodrow Wilson's interest. What is the interplay between essentially the, the good cop and the bad cop? these two women. And the more I looked at the evidence... Or the inside and the outside. The, or the inside player. game and the outside yeah. game, yeah, for sure. And it's both. I think it's both. The way change is most effective is when there's a radical force, but there's also something else. Because you can see in someone who's like Woodrow Wilson, he was more willing to talk to Carrie Chapman Catt, who was his contemporary, and understood what it meant to talk to someone like that without alienating him, because he knows that it's a way for him to move in the direction of suffrage without seeming to give away, to give ground to Alice Paul, whom he detests. Same thing could be asked about civil rights. Malcolm X and MLK, but also LBJ. He's sort of the epitome of the inside game. Or all the senators that finally invoked cloture, you know? Uh, they're not heroes for a number of reasons like MLK is. They're not martyrs. I think that we tend to glamorize the radical. I think especially when they're on the right side of history, they're the most romantic figures. Uh, often they have to write uh, the most stirring words because if you're trying to kind of generate consensus, that's not as exciting as if you're Ralph Bourne and sticking your eye, your finger in the eye of the establishment. But I tend to believe, especially because our country has mostly been functional and, you know, is going not great, but uh, trending towards the positive, long arc of history and all that. I tend to think that the institutionalist gets short shrift um, when history looks back. Right. Well, that's why, you know, Walter Whitman is one of the characters in this book because yeah. he uh, wasn't radical for long. But what he found a way to do in his long career is try to defend some of those values without attacking an institution. I, I went back and forth with my editor about this a lot. I didn't want to write a polemical book. Yeah. I didn't want to put my thumb on the scale and say, John Reed has the answers and Lippmann is wrong. Yeah. Or what I wanted you to don't. do is it's say- It's really, it's history and the character. You're, you're true to history and you let the characters tell the story. Right. It's the story. Well, that's it. Is that I, I, I'm fascinated by this era. I'm fascinated yeah. by these people. And I thought if I could just tell their stories, just get one narrative arc where you can sort of watch this unbelievable moment of hope give way to despair- 
that people could find their own lessons from what happened to them. The sudden relevance of a book about American society imploding works against it because I had thought this was going to be a book about a chapter of progress in our history that we could learn from. And it's become 1917 is a lot closer to where we are now than I ever expected to see in my lifetime. Do you think Princeton should remove Wilson's name from their school? It's, it's interesting. So Wilson, you know, as I said, like Wilson is a very complicated guy. Like he embodies some of the best impulses that Americans have tried to strive for and some of the worst things that we have failed to overcome. And I saw that they wanted to take his name off two buildings. If, yeah. I, if I remember right, there was it was the School of International Affairs and it was a residence. Yes, I think. Right. I think it's a mistake to take him off a of School of International Affairs. I think if there's one place where his legacy is worth keeping before us, it's how he thought about international affairs. It's not to say, as the Bush administration sometimes said, that we are going to send the third division to Iraq and impose American ideals. When Peace without victory is not that. And there is this vision of how America is supposed to exist in the world that Wilson articulated that it would be tragic for us to lose sight of. Now, putting his name on a residence hall, knowing what we know about his, how he felt about, particularly about race in this country, I have no problem with that one. Yeah. It's not just that like his views are retrograde by our standards. They were retrograde by his standards, yeah. by, the, by the 1914 standards. It was, it helped him get elected as a Northerner. He sh- shored up a lot of Southern support by sh- signaling to them, he, oh, don't worry, I'm a True blue racist. At the same time that he said that, you know, the black man would have no greater champion than me to his supporters who then came to him and said, a year ago, you sounded like Lincoln. And now you're allowing the federal government to be segregated, which hasn't happened before. Would this make a good rap musical, do you think? Um, I can't imagine it, but uh, who could imagine the last one, right? Oh, you think so? Yeah. You ever, you know, Assassins? What's on the Sondheim show? Assassins? Yeah. Of course I do. So Assassins plus Hamilton. I mean, they didn't kill anyone, but there was a lot of blood and guts going on. You sound like someone who started writing verses. <laughs> what do you got, Mike? Come I on. don't I don't have any. Uh, I Mostly the recitative, mostly the <laughs> rambling parts between the songs. <laughs> Tell you what, I'll come back in a couple of weeks. We'll start workshopping this. We'll yeah. see what we can come up with. Yeah, yeah. What's your name? Walter Lippmann. No, it doesn't work. Okay. Let's see which one works. We should we should give this a couple of weeks yeah, first. We shouldn't yeah. do this. Jeremy McCarter is the author of Young Radicals in the War for American Ideals. Thank you, Jeremy. Thanks, Mike. first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on that's nice at caskers.com we make this experience easy caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code welcome 10 for ten dollars off your first purchase get ten dollars off your first purchase with code welcome 10 at caskers.com And now the spiel. North Korea has issued a statement calling Otto Warmbier's death a mystery. I wonder if they're looking into a Cosby-type tour to tell prospective college students visiting their country how to avoid comas. The Warmbier story upsets me for many reasons beyond the obvious that a bright young man died at the hands of the worst regime on earth. He was a good kid, it would seem, which is why when he was arrested, a lot of outlets, Salon, 
The Huffington Post thought it was time to tell you about white privilege. Salon, this might be America's biggest idiot frat boy. Meet the UVA student who thought he could pull a prank in North Korea. I'd read more about that story, but Salon took it down. The Huffington Post story is still up. North Korea proves your white male privilege is not universal. It's not just in hindsight that this was stupid. You're talking about the repression North Korean regime, and you're taking their word for why he was put in jail. Maybe he was just put in jail because he's an American, not necessarily a white male privileged American. The official story was he stole a sign. And then what about proportionality? Here you have a young man, a young American, detained by the North Koreans. And we know what that could mean. And the thing you're just dying to point out is the privilege part. The Nightly Show, Larry Wilmore Show, had its own take. Here's some of that. Listen up, frat boy. Uh, This isn't like the time you stole Sigep's goat. (laughs) This is North Korea. This routine and those Huffington Post and Salon pieces, they do sound worse today, knowing that the young man was buried this week than they did at the time. And at the time, I suppose you could make the case that this was something like a guy surfs during a hurricane and then he drowns. And you say, well, of course, the loss of life is sad and his family doesn't deserve it. But the guy, to some extent, had it coming. Um, you take the immorality of North Korea you, it's like the amorality of a hurricane. And you say to yourself, we're not even commenting on the North Koreans. Obviously, they're terrible, beyond terrible. But what we want to do is point out about the decisions of this one kid to get into that situation. And then the frat boy jokes fly. The problem is that you are taking the North Koreans word for it. And we should also say, if we're really bending over backwards to explain what the uh, Nightly Show did, and they're taking a lot of criticism, that it was unlikely when he was arrested, it, it was unlikely that he would die. And I only say that judging by the history of Americans who are detained by the North Koreans, it happens. Sometimes they languish in jail for months and months or even longer. Sometimes ex-presidents have to go to North Korea to earn their release. But actually killing an American is pretty rare. So I would just say maybe then, maybe when warm beer is released and safe, maybe then you could do all your frat boy jokes if you confirm rather than assume that stealing a poster is what got him into this situation. When, of course, we know what got him into this situation was the North Koreans being the worst government on earth. I thought the Huffington Post piece, again, couldn't read the Salam piece. They took it down. I thought the Huffington Post piece, and I'll read you some of that, was just beyond idiotic. But I defend satirists. Some of the jokes that Larry Wilmore, if they were in a less fraught situation. Some of them were okay. Some of them weren't really good jokes, but I always defend satirists. I really like Larry Wilmore. I mean, let me give you an example. Uh, I almost never talk about Alex Jones on this show. There are just some people that, while terrible, and we could talk about all the terrible things they do, you know, they just shouldn't get much airtime, I think. But when Colbert does a really funny impression of Alex Jones, I think that's great. I bend over backwards to allow satirists to satirize. That said, I think Larry Wilmore came on the show, who's great, who's really thoughtful, who's kind of a genius when it comes to how television works. I think he misplayed this. I assume he thinks he misplayed it. Here's what he said on his podcast about this episode. We did a piece on The Nightly Show about a year ago when he was first captured, and our piece was really kind of a cautionary tale, just kind of uh, taking the point of view about knowing that you're in an authoritarian regime and not doing a college prank type of thing. It was that type of thing on a comedy show. But I'm not here to talk about that piece or to defend it and everything. Wilmore did not go as far as to say the segment was wrong. I do wonder if he thinks it was wrong. He might. He's a thoughtful guy. 
And he did go on to offer sincere condolences to the Warm Beer family. He didn't get into whether he thought the segment is defensible. Um, he just talked about the pain of the Warm Beer family, which is fine. Maybe he does think that he'd like to do it again or not to have done it at all, and not just because of how things turned out. I think there is a real punching up versus punching down problem here. I think it gets in the way of the satire. As for the Huffington Post article, here's a little of that. It starts with the quote, that's what the hell he gets. Good for him. Now that's the author's mother talking about Michael Fay, that kid who was caned in Singapore a few years ago. And then the author comes around to saying that she agrees with that sentiment when it comes to auto warm beer. The high of privilege told him that North Korea's history of making examples out of American citizens who dare challenge their rigid legal system, that's what it is, a legal system, in any way was no match for his alabaster American privilege. When you could watch a white man who entered a theater and killed a dozen people come out unscathed, you start to believe you're invincible. When you see a white man taken to Burger King in a bulletproof vest After he killed nine people in a church, you learn the world will always protect you. So there she goes, assuming Otto Warmbier was influenced by mass murderers not killing themselves or getting killed at the scene. And that's why he stole a poster off the wall in North Korea, if indeed that's what happened. Now, all of this got me to thinking of two things. The first thing is... When it comes to police shootings, which have been in the news, and again, we got a not guilty verdict in Wisconsin, a not guilty verdict with Philando Castile in Minnesota, and a hung jury again in Cincinnati. So they've been in the news. Now, sometimes you hear, and this is really so frustrating to me, the defenders of the police, not talking about specific cases or thresholds of proof, they'll just say, well, you you need to comply. They didn't comply. It wouldn't have happened if he complied. He should have complied. All right, let's say even if that is true, what about proportionality? Even if it's true, even if that's the thing his defense lawyer is going to say, and probably win because that's how defense lawyers do in these cases, isn't it more humane to say he should have complied, but what a disproportionate response? You know, so some of that was going on in my head thinking about auto warm beer. If you believe the North Korean line that he stole this poster, shouldn't you say at some point no one deserves what the consequences, the overreaction to that was? The other thing it got me to thinking about was Gilad Shalit. He was the Israeli soldier who was captured, and that sparked a recent war uh, with Hamas in Lebanon. And if you read about how Israeli society sees itself, they just couldn't live with the idea of this young Jewish soldier, one of them, one of their citizens being held. And that led to basically the country demanding they go to war. I mean, that led to this unification around this. And you could make the case he was stupid. It was his own fault. He was stupid for getting caught. You could also make the case that actually engaging in a war is tactically a dumb thing to do as a consequence. It didn't matter because they all identified with him. He is a young Jewish soldier. We are the Jewish people. He is an Israeli soldier. We are the Israeli people. This is what we do for our young men. Just a different reference. I know America and Israel are very different. We're such a larger country. We're such a more diverse country. We were founded for different ways. We don't have the homogeneity in our population that Israel does. But that said, it just got me to thinking how one society organizes itself around 
a young man in turmoil and what another society does. And it tells me that's who they are and this is who we are. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Mary Wilson. No relation to Woodrow Wilson. Unless, you know, you really like Woodrow Wilson. But then, no, still, no relationship to Woodrow Wilson. Just is also produced by Chris Berube. No relation to Woodrow Berube. You know, the namesake of the Woodrow Berube School of Animal Husbandry. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He has no family connection at all to Woodrow Woodpecker, but I would like to point out that Woodrow slash Woody Woodpecker, one of the few title cartoon characters who has a signature laugh, but no catchphrase or speech impediment. The gist, we were a very classy family. We didn't have a Woody station wagon. We had a Woodrow hatchback touring sedan, inside of which on long road trips, a young Mike Pesca would occasionally urinate in a bottle. Umpru depru dupru, and thanks for listening. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.